I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About cargo shorts. About the Outer Banks. About the military-industrial complex. About family being fucked. About consciousness in One Tree Hill. About the ways we punish ourselves. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are talking about Beyond What is Given by Rebecca Yaros. And this was recommended to us by Laura Pendon-Jones. Thank you so much, Laura Pendon-Jones, on Instagram for this recommendation. Do you want me to read it? The back of the book? Yes, please. Be careful what you wish for. Lieutenant Grayson Masters is focused on graduating the Apache helicopter course, and the last thing he needs is his gorgeous new roommate, Samantha Fitzgerald, distracting him. While her smart mouth and free spirit are irresistibly irritating, he can't deny their off-the-charts chemistry no matter how hard he tries. Having just been expelled from college, Sam has no business digging for Grayson's secrets while she's hiding her own. But that doesn't stop her from trying to tear down his walls. Each barrier she busts through drops one of her own, though, and she's not prepared for the truth. Another woman laid claim to Grayson's heart long ago. Falling in love is something neither Grayson nor Sam can afford, and when that line is crossed and secrets are exposed, they'll learn that sometimes it's the answered prayers that will put you through hell. Oh, man. I feel like the back of the book summary kind of gestures towards this Christian faith that underpins a lot of this book. Yes. Without being explicit. Yes. It took me until the back half of this book to realize how much evangelical faith I was getting. And it felt very sneaky. And once I like had been clued into like the note that only dogs can hear, I was like, oh, I was tricked. But I mean, like, no surprise. Sure. Reading a military romance. I'm not surprised by that. No. Where do you want to start? I kind of want to start with just the idea of like what surprised us about this being a military romance and what didn't surprise us. So something that didn't surprise me, but was certainly a dog whistle, as you said, (laughs) was the Christian underpinning of this. Mm hmm. Uh, I wasn't surprised by the rampant, possessive machismo. I think that feels like an expectation or certainly one that I had and tried to put away for this novel. And then when it had it, I was like, oh, that confirmed that bias. (laughs) Yeah, I think the reason we weren't surprised by this is that I don't think it takes conservative values to be a part of the military. Mm -hmm. Just speaking from my personal experiences, but I do think it takes a conservative worldview to romanticize the military. Mm -hmm. So something that's interesting about this book is that our hero and his friends have never actually served. They are students. It is a Top Gun type situation Mm -hmm. where they're learning to be elite pilots. They went to a military academy. The Citadel. The Citadel. And I think, you know, perhaps there are some listeners. I don't know what it's like overseas, but I do know that we have overseas listeners. So should we clarify some of the different pathways you can enter the U.S. military for them? Sure. 
Okay. So imagine you're from a small town. You can't really afford college. And there are lots of ads and lots of people calling you directly from the military saying, we'll pay for your college. You'll have a guaranteed income. Healthcare. A place to live. And this is all afforded to you in exchange for service to your country. And, you know, I think a lot about the fact that we demanded Japan's emperor admit he wasn't a god. And yet we have so much of our military service is certainly wound up in an idea of belief in a higher power, which monotheism feels especially patriarchal anyways. Yeah. And so it's a patriarchal hierarchy. I would also say like the monotheism of the American military is a particular branch of Christianity that like is usually evangelical rather than something else. There are people of other faiths. There are plenty. All other faiths who serve in our military. Indeed. There's just a lot of God talk. (laughs) There is a lot of God talk. There's a lot of higher power talk. And one of the other things, it's not just that they're calling you in your small town. It's that they show up at your high school and have a table with brochures and stuff. Yeah. And so you see them a lot. Like this was certainly true of my experience in rural Wisconsin and really in Columbia, Missouri, too. In a lot of ways, they're the only game in town. Yes. They were the only recruiters who were permanently in my community. Yeah. Besides the community college. Cities like Chicago will permanently have recruiters from major universities who live here and talk to students every day and go to all of the college fairs. That is not true in most small towns, but there is an army recruitment office. Yep. And so whenever you enter the military through this particular lane, you enter boot camp. If you've seen movies about like the Vietnam War, movies about Vietnam tend to talk more about draft. It's pretty much the same. You go through a boot camp process. You learn what you need to know in an expedited amount of time. You get the shots you need and then you're placed somewhere. You can be for any amount of time. There are supposed limits on service, but oftentimes you're going to request to re-up, you know, four years, five years, six years so that you can keep your income and your job. Once you have successfully served a certain amount of time without dying, they will pay for your college that you get into for four years. And the other thing to note about this particular way into the army is that you are non-commissioned. So any officer rank that you attain, either private first class or sergeant or corporal, all of those are non-commissioned. So that also creates a pay scale difference. And so if you enter ROTC in college and you get your four-year degree and then jump into the military, you're immediately a commissioned officer at the pay scale of lieutenant. And so ROTC and post-college is another way to enter the military. And then there's this other pathway, which is attending a military academy. Yep. And that is what big wigs do. I'm trying to think if there's like any joint chief currently who was recruited by a local army office. No, the leap from non-commissioned to commissioned takes quite a bit of time and can be pretty difficult. But also the thing about these military schools is that they pride themselves on a particular kind of ethos of like breeding officers who will serve for the entirety of their careers. Their lives. Their lives. And it's a full on universe. It's a very good like West Point is a very. It's a very good education. Good academic school. It's a place where people want to teach. Yeah. Big wigs go there like sons of senators who are going to serve and like want to potentially become senators or presidents later. But the way that like normies would get into the Citadel or these other like Annapolis, these other military academies is that you have to have two letters from your congressman. So like there's quite a huge threshold to get into one of these. And you have to be really academically top of your class. 
I know one guy from my hometown who went to West Point and he was my main academic competitor throughout elementary school and then oh, he wow. was homeschooled. I think I've done pretty well academically, but the level of intensity required of him to get from where we started to West Point is not something I would have <laughs> had the capacity for. Mm-hmm. Even though I would argue, like, you know, I was demonstrably just as smart as him. Yeah. Just to clarify, like, it really takes, like, a singular focus on entering the military. Like, you have to have, like, an ideological threshold to do that. Yes. That people who go to Harvard and Yale don't really share. Right. Just, like, the letters of recommendation and who you need it from and, like, essentially, like, a government sponsor to get a spot. A certain amount of connectivity. Right. It's a lot. You don't get recommendations from a Republican congressman if you don't share, if you can't talk to them about their views, you know? Mm -hmm. That's the other thing is that it kind of creates a political echo chamber. Mm -hmm. But they are, once again, like the thing that might surprise you is that academically they're very good schools. Yeah, top tier. So that kind of gets us into our hero who has entered the military through this route. Grayson Masters. Yeah. So he is keeping his militariness secret from his family because he has a deep, dark secret. When he was in high school, his friend was drunk and he let his friend drive a different car than he was and got into an accident with his friend and that caused his girlfriend to go into a coma, a vegetative state for five years. Well, so like the accident as it's revealed to us over the course of the novel in several very harrowing scenes is very much like that one song, Where Oh Where Can My Baby Be? The drunk friend wings his car into their lane and then Grayson has to swerve. They go over the bridge. She's locked under the water. He gets her out. He's like pounding on her chest for like 30 minutes trying to do compressions. He breathes for her. Breathes for her until they can get the rescue boats into the river. It's quite harrowing. And then she's brave dead and comatose for five years. It's insanity. Like this book, foundational trauma for Grayson. Insanity. Yeah. So one of the things that surprised me about this book is that it wasn't about like a small town boy trying to get his life together. So he joins the military, which is the narrative that I'm most closely familiar with from my personal life. And I was really surprised that it was featuring this other path to joining the military, this professionalism of it almost to a different extent. So that surprised me that it was choosing this kind of ersatz, I guess, way of thinking about the military. I was surprised how literally little the military featured. Like it was entirely like the structure of the thing. It like, yeah, but it didn't really present an obstacle. Even for like the top gunness of the setting, it felt more like a setting rather than the crux of the novel itself, which for a military novel, I was surprised by how little military stuff there was. Mm -hmm. Even though our heroine Samantha Fitzgerald is an army brat herself. Her mother is a colonel uh, serving in Afghanistan at the beginning of the novel. Yeah. The military creates problems in the novel that the military also solves. So like, because Samantha grew up an army brat, she 
That makes her an army brat. Army brat, I think, was developed as a term to reference uh, children born out of wedlock to mothers in towns of international military bases, wasn't it? No, in its parlance for the last 60 years in the United States, army brat refers to anybody who's a child of the military and has to move a lot. I don't want to call someone a military brat. So she's the daughter of a general or something. A colonel. A colonel. So because she's had this kind of unstable home life because of that. She refuses to be in a relationship, right, with a guy in the military, but it also leads her to, as it does in real life, she's surrounded by people involved in the military, so inevitably she ends up Mm -hmm. falling in love with her roommate who is in flight school. And then there's the problem of like his parents not wanting him to be in the military, but he's just too darn good (laughs) at being in the military, and so then he's able to like evade all of those kind of pitfalls as well. The like violence in the book, the situations of real danger have nothing Mm -hmm. to do with the military. They have to do with tornadoes Mm -hmm. and drunk drivers. So that was also something that I found I I wasn't expecting. But this book was as full of angst as I supposed it would be. But none of the angst comes from the military. Yeah, which was actually deeply surprising. Certainly surprised me. Do we want to talk more about Grayson's foundational trauma and how that informs him? Do we want to talk about Sam. Where do you want to go? Well, we started with Grayson. So we've kind of touched on his foundational trauma. So he keeps this fact of his life secret from all of his friends at military school. And he keeps his military life separate from all of his family back home. Mm -hmm. And he's returning home like once every two weeks. And then Grayson has four sisters, only two of which are important, Parker and Mia, the two younger ones. The two younger ones. Well, no, there is also the controversy with Joey. I love Joey. queer icon Joey. His dad built custom sailboats for a living and their plan was always that he was going to get like a really good engineering degree from the Citadel, serve for just three years and then come home. <laughs> Poor Joey has just been like Josephine. Uh, Joey has been holding down the fort at Masters and Sons, like putting her heart and soul into these boats and dad just really wants Grayson to do it. Grayson's dad made Joey's leadership contingent on the co-ness of her brother which is so fucked. Very exhausting. One thing that's surprising me about this novel is that you're talking about how Mm -hmm. crazy it was. And I was like, oh, this is like a lot of angst. This is more angst than I would enjoy. But I also felt like everything, in spite of just the layers of it, everything seemed really believable because the stakes were adjusted accordingly. Like the family had had this like perfect love story. Mm Mm-hmm within them of Grayson and Grace and then that gets ruptured and so Grace's family showing up to the dinner. Oh my god. And Parker's obsession with making it work and the dad's like obsession with like keeping his family together to the point of extremely overstepping boundaries of one adult to another with Grayson. He calls the flight school and tells them that Grayson's dyslexic and Grayson has never been tested for or diagnosed with the dyslexia. But it also uses all this language of like 
accusing me of having dyslexia. Oh, my God. And then in the end, when Grayson confronts him, so like there's this insane scene where his dad gives him this phone call and he's like, remember, everything I do is because I love you. And then Grayson, like two hours later, gets a call from the leader of the flight school. And he's like, you need to come in. Some accusations have been made. And he's like, there's nothing in your medical file saying that you are dyslexic. There's nothing like you've always been at the top of your class. Like, tell me, son, are you dyslexic? And of course, Grayson has never been tested. He's never been treated. But like he does indeed have some form of it and he knows it innately and so does his dad but since his dad never had him tested there's nothing in his medical file to keep him from doing this and this is wild I highlighted it where has your toxic masculinity gotten you now dad I know (laughs) kept you from getting dyslexia on the paperwork And now you can't destroy your son's life. Oh, my God. And here it is. So the the dad and the son are having it out after this conversation where there's no medical file of him having dyslexia. And he's like, maybe I should have let the doctors test you. Maybe I should have let you deal with it on your own so that no one laughed at you. Maybe I should have put you with all the specialists and the labels. So this never happened in the first place. How to apologize like a man. How to apologize like a man. I'm like, you should have gotten your son the proper therapy so he didn't struggle so much in school, bad dad. Like, what the fuck? Like, I wasn't going to put you in with the doctors and have labels on you, even though you can't read and it was hell to teach you how to drive, which is why you like killed your girlfriend. What the fuck is wrong with you, dad? Exactly. But this idea of like not being a person of value unless you suffer through all of the stuff that's wrong in your life. Totally. Yeah. And they even mention in the meeting with the general accusing Mm -hmm. big air quotes of him having dyslexia that he would have been able he would have qualified for a waiver. Right. Which like, why do they even have a waiver system in place if they don't expect this to come up? And then they're like, that would immediately disqualify you from flight school. And it's like, well, then why have the waiver system? (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand. But I'm sure that's true just because military bureaucracy. But it also blew my mind that they would even call him in for a meeting if there's absolutely no record and no standing of it. And there's no reason to believe it in his class, right? Like he's at the top of his class and he graduated the Citadel at the top of his class. So he can clearly read. Yeah. And they make the point of like, can you prove you're not dyslexic? And he's like, can you prove that I am? And it's like, yeah, there's tests. You could have done them at any point in your life. You can do them now. Oh, God. Dyslexia is something that we actually have systemic structures in place to create a more equal footing for people with dyslexia. So yes, dyslexia is something we can objectively test for. (laughs) Yeah. And also treat and like create like strategies and therapies around. It put me in this weird space, like after reading the dad quote, like I should have let them test you. And I was like, yeah, asshole, you literally should have. Yeah, man, you should have. Like he would have qualified for more time on his SAT. It wouldn't take him two and a half hours to read six lines of poetry. And then like thinking about his struggle just made me feel so sad for Grayson and like how alone that must have felt for him. Yeah. Dad has never recovered for me. Like there's like this weird scene where he like shows up at the graduation and is like, I'm sorry, I just loved you so much. And I'm like, this is not what love is. This is possession. Yeah, it is possession. That's another interesting facet of this book is that Grayson is very clearly in love with two women at the same time. And it is romantic love. Yes. And yet this binary still exists of there's this really nuanced understanding of how a person can hold two truths for two people at the same time. And yet this very dated idea of 
possession as being indicative of love. And he must choose one. Mm -hmm. And his ownership of Sam physically is almost immediate and violent. Mm -hmm. I don't think this book is at all conscious of the fact that it's articulately discussing polyamory, but it is doing that. Mm -hmm. While at the same time having this incredibly jealous possessive idea of love that the book is also situating as true like jealous possessive love is true of romantic love of familial love like it is a part of love even to the point where with Sam's trauma the wife of the professor that she had an affair with is constantly attacking these women which once again why is it always a woman who's the villain well you know why because men, even when they make mistakes, are like, they're led astray. It, yeah, it's because of internalized misogyny. Yeah, dude. So, yeah, let's talk about Sam's trauma. Okay. It was the most baffling part of the book for me. So Sam has an affair with her ethics professor, finds out that he's married. She didn't know at the time. Finds his wedding ring in his desk, confronts him. In the quad. Slaps him across the face. And then people take film of it. And so then she doesn't attend the rest of her semester, fails out. And then she tries to get into other schools. But she believes her assault of this professor is what's keeping her out and her tanked GPA of one semester. But what is revealed over the course of the novel is that her transcripts are being tampered with. And one of the ways that we get this information is that she's been receiving very threatening and abusive emails from secret accounts. And she just assumes that it's this professor that she used to sleep with Harrison, but it's revealed in the fullness of time that it is indeed Harrison's wife who works in the registrar's office who is harassing Sam. And then we learn at the very end that Harrison, the professor, has also slept with multiple young students, multiple undergraduates. Five. And that his wife is also harassing them and changing their transcripts, making it impossible for them to go on with their lives. Yeah. And all of them, thankfully, had hard copies of their original transcripts before they were tampered with. Yeah. And of course, his wife works in the bursar's office and is able to manipulate these records. But at the beginning of the book, Sam, and this is my weirdest part. At the beginning of the book, I am baffled by the fact that Sam, like she's getting after the fact of acceptance rejection letters. She's getting acceptance to universities rescinded mm -hmm. and she never looks at her transcript <laughs> and she just assumes that it's because she punched a professor. Yeah. And that she had a hearing, but like they still allowed her to stay in school after that, which would imply that the transcript would reflect the fullness of the what transpired between the two people. And honestly, if something like that happened, a professor at a public university like the University of Colorado would immediately be fired. Yeah. Maybe unless they had tenure. I don't know. Maybe, but then they'd have to contest the charge or be like, you know, and like that stuff happens. But like, I too was shocked that she was getting rescinded acceptance letters and never looked into it. But like, we learned that in her mind, her transcript says punched a professor. But also in her mind, she believes she's getting rejected from these schools for a moral failing. Yeah. And for being, she uses words like slut and whore that are also used in the language of the email. At the beginning of the book, I was like, does she honestly think she's not getting accepted to universities because she had an affair with a professor? And then I find out that no, she thinks that it's because because she assaulted a professor, which makes more sense. Like, there's lots of inconsistencies in the narrative of this book. Mm -hmm. 
For example, Grayson's internality at the beginning of the book is entirely like, don't let anyone in. And everyone's like, I don't even know Grayson. And then he'll say stuff like, we're a family. We have family dinner every Sunday. And it's like, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't have like an incredibly close relationship with these people and be like, we're family. We stick up for each other. And then also be like... I can never let them know who I really am. Mm -hmm. And also just in general being kind of a rude dick. Or even where I live. Yeah. There's one point in the beginning where Sam is commenting in her internality about Grayson. And she's like, his intensity is exhausting. And I was like, oh, boy, what a choice line for the thing that this book is trying to make sexy and terrifying. Like this like Rochesterfication of Grayson. I like it's fucking exhausting. It's just tiring. I'm just like, oh, God, talk or don't. I don't care. Yeah, it was a matter of like extreme angst, but a lot of it could have been alleviated by reading the transcript. And you don't need to have an original copy. Like she does like a lot of investigative work. Yeah. But she could have just read her transcript, saw that there was stuff on there that wasn't there before, contacted the university, and their software would have been able to track all of the changes. Right. Who had made the changes? Like, that was my first thought. I'm like, they are using PeopleSoft. You can see who the person was that changed the last file. Yeah. Just to assure everyone there, Isabeau and I have both worked in higher education administration. We want to assure you, there are a lot of fail-safes in place. Like, professors across the board get away with a lot of bullshit, but it's because they don't have a paper trail. And the idea that someone in a bursar's office would create a paper trail (laughs) in order to make someone else's life harder, y'all, it just wouldn't happen. Yeah. If you were going in and making changes to someone's file every time they applied to a new university, which is what happens, she adds another like indiscretion to her file. Including like plagiarism and stuff. That would be flagged by a supervisor. Before she even got a chance to look at her transcript, someone else would have looked at it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Especially for that kind of changes, especially since she was applying to so many. So that's a lot of requests for transcripts. Yeah. No. Yeah. Also, the fact that we don't know if Michelle has ever punished the woman who's been doing this to like six young women. Yeah. And like she gets reinstated at the university. And I'm like, that seems like the smallest thing here. And I'm like Michelle and the professor like fucking get to like what? We don't know. It's never resolved. I hated that. Yeah. She describes it whenever she goes to the dean's office to share this information with the other four women who have been going through the same thing. She says about how they piled their evidence of sexual harassment on his desk. And it's like, but this isn't actually against the professor. Like, this is against his wife. As consenting adults, like, if you have proof, like, this happened to me when I was an undergrad. A friend saw her TA out at a bar and she took a picture with him. He freaked out once he saw them on Instagram because obviously he was drunk and he was like, you can't have those on there. Like, I'll lose my scholarship. I'll get kicked out of the university. Mm -hmm. And when she was talking about it with me, she was like, yeah, I mean, like, it's just a picture of us at a bar. Mm -hmm. Like, if you have that kind of fraternizing you know if you're like I was with a student there was alcohol like that creates kind of a gray area but if there are pictures or like if he sent her a text message that was flirtatious or anything romantic is gonna get someone in very big trouble 
There was a TA in my college town who got stopped by the local newspaper for style on the street. And one of the style on the street questions was, do you have any big secrets? And she said, well, I'm actually engaged to my supervising professor. And everyone, the entire lab got let go. My friend lost her undergraduate research position. (laughs) And like his entire career was just bye. Like you can't do it. And if you punch a professor on the quad, there's going to be an investigation. There's going to be an investigation. And someone who knows you is going to be like, yeah, they were fucking. And they're going to be like, well, that undermines the legitimacy of her grades. That undermines the legitimacy of his research. And that right there are both the legs that a university stands on. So they will fucking fire you, man. Yeah. Especially this pattern of behavior, too, like once it was revealed. Although for like this being published in 2015, like finding out that there were more victims, young women who he had preyed on. I mean, it felt extremely me, too, where it's like she wasn't going to do anything when her little 18 year old computer coder friend revealed all this information to her. And then she's like, but other girls are getting the harassing emails. And then she's like, well, I have to stand up for them. And I thought like that moment where she decides to go back and decides to talk to these other women and they have have these files like you know that was like very prescient so I listened to this other podcast where people just call into a phone line and tell this guy a story and he has a really long conversation with them and this one woman called in and she was like I saw the high school teacher I had a romantic relationship with when I was his student at a Starbucks she was like 30 or something at the time when she called in and she had been 15 when they started their relationship and she had never reported it. And over the course of this conversation, you know, she shared that he had daughters who were close to her age and it made her think about things. And I can't remember the guy's name. He's great. He's a great comedic actor and he's great on this podcast is excellent. I wish I could remember anything about it. But over the course of the conversation, he's like, so you never told anyone. And she said no. And he said, how do you feel like about your responsibility to other women in that case? And she said, you know, he really talked to me about how I was different and special. And I just don't believe he would do this to someone else. And there's almost this romanticization of your victimhood Mm -hmm. where you're like, I'm the only one he would do this to because I was so special and brilliant for a 15 year old. And Chris Gethard, that's the guy's name. He asked her, he was like, so when you look back on yourself when you're 15, because you've talked about having diaries and stuff, do you read it and see someone with the maturity of a 27 year old? (laughs) Like, do you honestly believe what he was telling you? And I mean, he's much more diplomatic than I could ever be. He's such a kind, gentle person in this conversation leading her you know and asking the right questions she's like no and he's like Mm -hmm. well if he was telling you you were special but you weren't really special in that way and even if you were do you think that there weren't others like you Mm -hmm. and don't you think there were all of these other reasons that he would pick you out because she talked about the fact that she was really self-conscious and I mean you know like all of the classic trademarks of someone who a predator a teacher predator would identify right family problems not a high self-esteem obviously puts a lot of value into the opinions of adults and you know is academically gifted yeah all the things those are the hallmarks right and I was thinking about that when our heroine is first approached by Avery the young computer whiz who helps her out with this and says like well aren't you going to report it And she says, no. And Avery says, what about the other women? And our heroine, you know, immediately is like, oh, yes, other women. I must protect them, which is also a very militaristic idea of like the whole before the self. Right. But also like struck me like it would be so hard like to 
reckon with the fact that there were four other women. Like when this happens to you, it's almost a comfort to think you're the only one, not only in service to the whole, but just in like a reckoning with the self to say like it was because there is something significant about me. I am the main character. I was special. And then to find out you're not like that would require, I imagine, another level of of reconciliation. Anyways, I think so, too. And like a weird feeling probably of betrayal. And like it's weird, too, where it's like I feel like we've moved so quickly in the last 15 years in terms of like our discussions of what's okay and what's not, especially as it comes to women. And like it's so weird that you bring up this 15 year old from this podcast because like my gym teacher in high school had a relationship with our other gym teacher when she was in high school. And by the time I was in high school, she was 23 and married and was going to have his baby. And like the idea that like when they got together, when they began their relationship, she was 17 and he was in a position of authority over her. It's huge. (laughs) And he's going to do it again. Right. And it's like the fact that it was like, written off in like the narrative of my high school as like a romantic little like fuddy-duddy thing that like wow whoopsies like they got together and like I guess it's okay now because they got married and I was like I remember telling that story to my mom and her being like that feels so gross and terrible and I was like thank you because everybody's acting like this is just the thing the other kind of cognitive dissonance that has to happen there is accepting the fact that the man's life in this case is more valuable than yours right because you will create a narrative of like he could lose everything for me right and it's like well you could lose everything right and in the case of Sam she has and like she uses that excuse where like he risked everything to be with me and it's like you're the one who got kicked out and now can't get into other schools and he still has his job in tenure yeah exactly and uh, you know I just read three women and, and one of the stories is about a woman who is reckoning with an affair she had with her high school teacher as an adult. And part of it is she says, of course he loved me. He risked everything for me. But the stakes for men are never going to be as high as they are for women. And this book would have worked just as well if that had been the case. Like if he was the one sending her just harassing emails to hurt her feelings, you know, and she was having a hard time getting into other schools just based on the fact that the only record was that she had punched a professor and that she had bad grades for a semester. I do feel like it did a disservice by making the villain his wife who is seeking revenge against the five other women he's had sex with. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. And like, there's a really lovely scene where she feels like she's really scraping the bottom of the barrel and she goes to the community college and she has this meeting with the guidance counselor and the guidance counselor is like really straight with her. She's like, what is it on your transcripts that you are so worried about? And that's where she's like, that I hit a professor. And like at the end, you know, the guidance counselor is like, well, would you do it again? She's like, would I have an affair with professor? No fucking way. Would I hit him again? Yeah. But also why didn't in that moment, the community college admissions rep say, oh, you're not talking about like all of these other accusations in your transcript. Right. Which, okay. Now, having spent a lot of time saying I didn't enjoy how unrealistic air quotes this was I do acknowledge that like this is creating angst and tension for pleasure the reason I'm able to complain about it is that I don't like this much angst yeah too angsty for me but if you like a lot of angst you'll probably be able to suspend disbelief so you can get your jollies on this 
two tornadoes <laughs> in Alabama, right? Oh, man. And there are two tornadoes, y'all. One of the things that's so funny about this book in terms of its structure is that usually romances have a pretty, what I would say, like a tight three act structure where you've got like your first move, usually around the first kiss, either the move from like enemies to lovers realization or like friends, whatever it is. It's that first move to romance. And then you have like the big thing and all of the tension in the middle of like, how are we going to like work out this other thing? And then you have, you know, the wrap up in the third act. This is definitely a five act structure and each act is insane. Each act has like a really large stakes angst set piece. It was incredible. Oh, because by the way, his girlfriend, Grace, her sister gives birth to a baby so that they can harvest its cord blood. And then within a week of doing so, she's awake from her coma, which I don't know if research is there yet. For the stem cells. Yep. Oh my God. I'm like, this book is what I imagine other people who hate on romance who've never read it think that romance is. This was soap opera from beginning to end. Soap opera is exactly correct. It was melodrama. You could not predict what was going to happen next in terms of like the stakes or like the emotionality of what was happening. And like, oh my God, it was just like one thing after another and like forced proximity. And then like the whole thing with a deck of cards where they're exchanging changing each other's secrets and then they go to Nag's head in the outer banks and like he has this whole thing with his fucked up family and then they like she meets Grace while she's comatose and then like Grace wakes up it was balls to the walls melodrama and like most of the dialogue is delivered via thousand yard stare soliloquy from every character and they say things in these big blocks of dialogue yep. that are completely out of character for them to say every character. Yep. Like Grayson being like, we're family first, no matter what. And it's like, you just said you don't trust any of these people. (laughs) Yes. Like what's going on? Because you can't trust them. No one can express themselves a direct way. Like they're all just like a sunset's behind them and suddenly they decide to talk and they give a graduation speech. Oh my God. It's so true. Oh my God. It's so true. It is. It's just like that. It's like the sun is setting and it's like all of the weird teen dramas where they start yelling at you. Their feelings are so loud and they're like, don't you see? I love you. It was like the one scene in the notebook where, you know, she's like, I waited for you. And he's like, waited for you. Like I wrote you all the letters and you know, they're just screaming at each other. That's how all of the dialogue is delivered. I think you guys can probably tell that like I was definitely not here for the first two acts. And then we get to like North Carolina and I was like, strap in bitches. We're going. It really did. This just like got so crazy. Soap opera is exactly right. It's episodic. It is episodic. Let's buckle down here. What would be the sexiest part for you? Okay. What was good? Sure. I have a couple. I loved their sex scenes because so much traffic is made of like how much time Grayson spends in the gym because it's the only place where he can exhaust his like sad boy mind. So he has like an eight pack, the incredible like swimmers V. He's just like stacked as fuck. So like their sex scenes played a lot into his physicality and his strength. So there's a lot of like him throwing her around and like, you know, maneuvering their bodies effortlessly. And then there's one scene where like he has her sit on his face, like that whole sex scene. And it's also a very long sex scene. Yeah, I would say that's my sexiest 
part air quotes is just this book really gives a lot of space to sex scenes and seems to like pace them in a way that feels like it's celebratory of female pleasure just in the fact that most of the sex scene is spent on what men might consider foreplay and then you know the actual penetrative sex is less of a set piece Mm -hmm. I like that you talk about his body because I realized at one point when they have sex in the boat and Brianna is suddenly self-conscious about her body and she says, I'm not like, and she gestures towards his abs. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you're perfect. And she's like, you're right. I've got to own my curves, which is just like, Mm -hmm. can't we just be regular about curves and fat? Can't we just be regular about fat? Yeah. No, I just want it to not be a thing. I don't want it to be something I have to like be super excited about, you know? No. My body is normal. Why do I have to treat it like it's a... And comment on and... I understand why I have to treat it like it's revolution because it is revolutionary for you to like it. But I just wish we were beyond that. Anyways, but up until that point, there had been no discussion of her being in any way like heavier or fatter. Yeah. The only thing I could remember about her body was was she wore a bikini to the pool and she looked really great in it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that her embodiment was just a collection of clothes. Her embodiment's a collection of clothes, but it's also how he watches her interact with the world. So like one of the first things that we get about her physicality is that she's on the counter reaching for the top shelf because she can't reach it, which then suggests that she's very short because she almost falls. He catches her and then he makes a mental calculus and moves all the things in the cabinets that she would want to a lower shelf for her. Well, here's what I'm just to finish my thought. Most of what we get about her are her clothes to indicate his observational care. I mean, it's not really descriptive. It's not helpful to me to know what she's wearing. It doesn't help me identify with the character or anything like that. But also, they're in an interracial relationship. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't come up, which I actually think is good and interesting. I think it's great that there's a book where there's an interracial relationship and that's not the angst. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that. And that was what I enjoyed about her embodiment, even though I would rather hear about the physicality of a heroine rather than what she's wearing Mm -hmm. because it helps me you know with my imaginings Mm -hmm. what does that say about me that I would prefer to like imagine a whole character who's not necessarily me in a sex scene does that say something about me as far as my preferences go no does that mean I'm a voyeur rather than (laughs) an exhibitionist no maybe I don't think so I like envisioning a whole person that like doesn't have me in it. Yeah. Maybe that's a little voyeuristic, but it's also just like fucking hot. Hot people having sex is hot. I think there's also something of like being able to connect with a specific feature and be like, oh, I have that. And then hear about that being like sexually attractive to someone that's pleasurable without being like it me getting fucked, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I think I prefer. But I just did not enjoy that. It was like all her clothing. It brought to the surface a pet peeve of mine. I didn't realize I had. I think since this book is like both interminable this book is so long and like because of its length and it feels its length it feels its length it's not like a Johanna Lindsay in that like I get to the end and I'm like oh my god where did the last like 36 hours go it's like no I really had to like work through certain pieces of this but there's this thing where I think because it is so long and so much of it really could have been edited there is space for something where you might have just like been dinged with an annoyance but like it comes up so often that it really just becomes a pet peeve yeah yeah that's certainly 
only happened for me in the discussion of Grace's physicality in the discussion of like Sam's lack of physicality. Like the only thing I know about Sam is that she is a black woman with curly hair and she's shorter than Grayson. Like that's what I know about her. Yeah. And hazel, green hazel eyes. Green hazel eyes. Naturally. Naturally. Abs. What I know about Grace is how long her fingers are, how long her hair is, like what the color of, you know, her nail beds are. We spend so much time in Grace's fragile, like ethereal, wraith-like comatose body. Delicate white femininity. Right. And I think that's the contrast. But since we never really get Sam's physicality other than that she's short and she thinks that she needs to rock her curves, which I'm not even exactly sure what that means. Like I was left to imagine so much of what Sam actually looked like embodying space. Yeah. And like I didn't have to imagine any of what Grace looks like because she's just like a white virginal wraith. Yeah. Can I also I just want to address the call to action to rock one's curves. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What does that even mean? I have no idea. Like they're just like on me. They are me. They are on me. Rock them. Every time I hear someone be like rock those curves they're usually trying to tell me to dress a different way. You know? Mm-hmm. Which has to do with like ideas of sexual desirability in the male gaze anyways. Rock those curves always makes me feel like dressing for the male gaze. Mm-hmm. And what's weird is because people are always telling Sam to put more clothes on. Yeah, like she wears too short of skirts and, and all of that shit. And her pajamas aren't like, that felt like very weird. Yeah, they're also upset about the conservatism of her pajamas. Yeah, and that like, I don't know. And like, that's all about like Grayson being like too sexually attracted to her. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do with any of this information right now. But he also says like he wouldn't have agreed to have a female roommate, period. And it's like, well, what's that about? Yeah. The allusion to conservatism really suggests that this book assumes the reader is going to share those values, understand them, agree with them and move on without questioning. I agree. And and like the explaining away where it's like a good Christian boy like Grayson wouldn't live with a woman he wasn't engaged or married to is done away with by the misconception that Grayson didn't know that Sam, Samantha, was a female person. Yeah. And not Samwise Gamgee, the male form of Samantha. Exactly. It is that. But suddenly she feels called upon in her short skirt wearing ways. She like was going to work at a strip club. Mm-hmm. Now she feels like she needs to call upon herself to rock her curves. It was almost like the writer learned about something halfway through writing and was like, I'm going to put this in my book. <laughs> yes. Body positivity. I think that happened more than one. I'm all about body neutrality. Which is like its own kind of thing. Like bodies just are in space. Like we should be OK with bodies just being in space. Everything is about like celebrate your body for what it looks like, which is what Rock Those Curves suggests. Mm -hmm. Like you should celebrate other people's experience of your body rather than your own being like, it was great. My body helped me sleep and I feel restful now. My body helped me get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. My body helped me enjoy delicious spaghetti (laughs) as opposed to like other people looked at my body. They liked what they saw. Now I like what I see. You know, it's just... Mm-hmm. Liking the look of your body <laughs> feels like it's doing an extreme disservice to your body and all of the work it does. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, think about everything your body does on a given day for you, you know, in tandem, right? Yeah. 
And then think about the fact that the main thing you're interested in about your body is how it looks to other people. I mean, yeah. Although Grayson did sound really hot. And I was happy to objectify that person. (laughs) That's the other thing is that it's just like the pleasure of looking, I think. Yes. The pleasure of looking is true for everything. Like the pleasure of looking at a painting or a building or a flower or a goose. These are just things that I like to look at is not totally divorceable from like the pleasure of looking at bodies. But there are lots of artists who are working to demonstrate the pleasure of looking at bodies as something other than sexual. Because once we get to sexualizing, you know, you do get to objectification in a way that's not necessarily true. So like the pleasure of looking at, for example, a building is you can get a lot of information from it. You can understand it historically, its place in time. You can look at it in the context of the other buildings around it and where you found it. And and that will carry a lot of meaning. And so in a way, you're de-objectifying a building by looking at it Mm -hmm. and trying to do the same thing with bodies is a relatively recent movement. Hmm. Like the pleasure of looking at a body is something other than sexual. And I think that's why people get up in arms about nude paintings when they are of fat people Mm -hmm. or nude paintings when they are of vulva, Mm -hmm. you know, because we can't divorce looking at a body from sexualizing it. Everybody, right? We're like, what is our rate of sexual desirability? This has gone off the rails. What were we talking about? A military romance? How hot Grayson is and how we don't know what Sam's body looks like. Yeah, exactly. And you were talking about how you enjoyed objectifying Grayson. I did. I really did. He just spends so much time in the gym. That's the other thing that I actually really did appreciate about this book. The knowledge of how much work it takes to maintain a physique like that. Like he's working out at the gym three hours a day. Like he has a membership to Anytime Fitness and he's there all the time. And I loved that this book like didn't make too much hay of that. But like also like it's on the page. Like you don't wake up that way. Like that is a job in and of itself. Right. I liked that. We've talked about the sexiest part. I think this book is actually incredibly sexy. They're like constantly lighting each other on fire with their eyes. Other people are commenting on how insane the sexual tension is. He's like constantly touching her face, which I thought was sexy. But one thing that I didn't like and isn't my weirdest part, but is sort of like a part of it. He's constantly kissing her forehead. And I'm like, one is fine. Two, okay. Three is infantilizing. Yeah. And like once we get it, basically every other chapter, I'm like, I'm so done with this guy. This is like paternalistic in the extreme. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Please stop. What was your weirdest part? Parker, the sister who's constantly stirring shit, was my weirdest part until it was explained. Once again, all of the villains are female. Yeah. I know that there are romance novels where the villain is a man. Johanna Lindsay is famous for that. Yeah. And then he's also the hero. also just meant that there are lots of male villains in Joanne Lindsay. But that was good. That was good. But the other thing about male villains is that there's always like, they want to rape you, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. it's never like they have any negative motivation beyond just like, the heroine is so hot that the only problems that she has with men relate to how beautiful and desirable she is. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like, they want the same promotion. Or they They are also in love with the hero like that never happens. And so like creating female villains, I understand is like a workaround for that. But maybe just imagine a world where there's a male villain who doesn't also want to make love to the heroine or rape her. Yeah. Marry her or whatever. You know, it's always like a repression thing, a sexual repression thing Mm -hmm. that which sucks. What was your weirdest part? 
There were a lot of weird parts. What's one you haven't touched on yet that you want to before the episode is over? And I go to buy my life cereal. No, I think we've touched on it. Like the tornadoes in Alabama (laughs) uh, felt very weird, subversive, like discussion of climate change. I don't think it is that, but like that's how I took it. Yeah. Proving that anything can be anything. (laughs) Parker, obviously. Yeah, I think those are like my major things. Like the dad is so bad. I think maybe my weirdest part is that I didn't find any of it that weird. Yeah. And like maybe that's the weirdest part of all where it's like once I got strapped in and it's really after their first sex scene where I was just like, this is just tickling all of my ivories. Like everything is just happening for me now. (laughs) And like that was incredibly surprising to me. You just shook something loose for me and I want to address it. And that is Grayson's father is a villain, but he's not a hurdle to their relationship. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that's where the difference is. In case anyone was wondering, I did confront it and reconcile it. Isabel, I am not surprised you found this book sexy. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) all of this conversation about like faith and duty that gets all wrapped up in the sexuality of this book Ugh, didn't love the faith stuff but i did love the loyalty stuff he says this thing where he's like i would sleep on your doorstep to be closer to you and i was just like oh that was nice dead just dead sometimes those graduation speeches really clicked on something really hit on something that i like they did and then i would immediately like be like, oh, no. One of the weirdest parts for me, two of the worst scenes that I've ever read in a romance novel. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. I would say taking up two spots in my top 10 at least. Wow. One is the dinner party. Oh, my God. (laughs) Where Parker has invited the parents. So Grace is going to his family's house to have dinner after he shared that she's his girlfriend because the family wants to get to know her better. And then Parker invites his comatose girlfriend's parents to the dinner, his sister Parker, and then also confronts him about being in flight school, which is something the family doesn't want to happen. Yes. Worst dinner scene ever. And just thinking about being there and like what you have to put up with in these situations. I feel like if you show up and you're the new girlfriend and this dinner is meant to revolve around you and the comatose girlfriend's parents show up and his parents are like, you guys are always welcome here. I feel like the social contract has been shattered enough that you can just be like, you know what? I'm going to bounce. I don't feel comfortable. Peace. I'm going to leave. Like, I do feel like there's always a limit to where you need to be polite. And this book really hit it at that point. I felt like Sam should have just bailed. Blameless and faultless. Totally. And like, it's funny that you mentioned that because like, I remember the experience of reading that scene incredibly clearly where like my body actually reacted in goose flesh. Yeah. It was so angst ridden and so terrible. And like everybody was talking at once where at points it was actually hard to picture who was yelling at who and like what had just been revealed. And like I hate those scenes in movies like in the family stone when there's a big dinner that like breaks down like that. I absolutely hate it. But just the distance of reading it was like it's just that like knife's edge of pleasure pain. Listeners, there are multiple awkward, awful graduation speech, knockdown fights, wherein other people are always inculcated and have to leave. Like their friends Jagger and Josh, hilarious, are constantly making exits in the middle of their like weird ass Liz and Richard Burton bullshit. That happens so much, but the dinner scene was truly like par excellence in terms of like how awful that scene was. The other awful scene. Uh Uh-huh. 
our hero and heroine are at the time just roommates. He has taken her home after she's gotten too drunk at a bar before because of fucking course, this is a romance novel. And he follows her while she's job hunting and sees that she's going to a strip club to apply for a job. Yes. And decides to insert himself to stop her from applying for this wretched profession. And there's this point where they are in the strip club and he says, don't do this, Samantha. And she's asked him why he calls her Samantha. And he says, I call you Samantha to remind my Myself that you're not just a roommate, but a woman. And to make sure I don't jump to the wrong conclusions about you, like the first time we met. <laughs> the wrong conclusions were he was assuming that she was sleeping with Josh or Jagger mm-hmm. because she was in the house. So let's talk about that. She is your roommate. Yep. In addition to being a woman. A human. <laughs> yeah. Really, she's just a human. Mm-hmm. And like your faulty assumptions are definitely wrapped up in the fact that she is a woman mm-hmm. rather than the fact that she is a human and a roommate. <laughs> mm-hmm. She refuses to leave. So he puts her over his shoulder. Oh, my God. That seems the worst. Which is assault. Yes. And carries her out of the strip club. Yes. And takes her to a gym where she can get a job at Anytime Fitness. I will promise you she's not making as much money at Anytime Fitness as she would have been at the strip club. She's not, especially in a military town. Yes. And this idea that like this scorn of strippers in the last three weeks of reading romance novels is exhausting to me. Yeah. What's wrong? It's a job. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a job. The thing keeping you from that job isn't your moral high ground. Mm-mm. At most, it's personal preference and social circumstance. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with you being a better person or more successful or anything like that. (laughs) Nope. Because there are super successful dancers who make enough money to, you know, have a house and everything. Another thing I want to say, straight women, why are you going to strip clubs? It's not your place. You're ruining, like, the whole structure of the situation by being there. Like, you disrupt the entire workplace. (laughs) You are Todd Packer in the office every time you walk into a strip club. And, of course, a stripper is going to be nice to you in the moment Mm -hmm. because they're tipped. Don't go into a strip club. You suddenly bring awareness to everyone who's spending money there of another arrangement that doesn't exist in the strip club. And then you disrupt it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems truly terrible. Just horrific. Don't do it. It's just not fair. It's not fair to other women. Like you're preventing another woman for having a more successful workplace mm-hmm. when you go in. And don't go with your husband. Ew. Do you want to see your husband? No. And I promise you, you will not see him as he really is at a strip club. Yeah. It's like a documentary. Like, it can never be real (laughs) because there's a camera there. You are the camera. It's true. Uh, Anyways, that was just a a little tirade. It was a good one. Maybe someone needed to hear that. Sure. Sure. Oh, and like, say your partner is behaving as he would normally in a strip club. Do you want to see that? Do you want that reality? No. Do you want to know him as that person? <laughs> Literally have like a visualization of it? No. No. <laughs> and maybe he is like a good guy in a strip club, but he is still a good guy in a strip club. Mm-hmm. It's different. Yeah. The conventions and the expectations create a lot of freight. 
Yes. And those conventions and expectations are there just as much for the safety and job security of the performers as they are there for the pleasure of the observers, the clients. Yeah. And you being there, you take up attention, you take up space. Yeah. In a lot of ways, this book reminds me of Never Sweeter in my reaction to it. I have less bad feeling about this book than I do around Never Sweeter. But there are certainly moments where I'm like, I like this despite myself in some ways. And I like both want to investigate that and also don't want to because like that will destroy like the actual genuine pleasure I took out of it. And then the other thing is like, I don't think I'm going to remember this book. And so like as we're like coming to our wrap up, like, you know, you and I talked in a wonus about like where do we put like a book that just fulfills all the romance conventions but it's not a barnstormer and like this for me is like somewhere between that and never sweeter where it's like I don't think I'm gonna think about this book a lot it's not gonna like live inside my chest it's not my top 10 of romances but there was a lot working in here that I thought was really good and the fact that it's so melodramatic the fact that it's basically like a season of army wives in a book all of that is just like it really hits a lot of keynotes for me yeah, so I want to know if you think it's a romance or no man. I would like you to speak specifically to what you enjoyed about this book, because I think that will also get more towards what is particularly military romance about this book. It is a romance for me. I like I truly enjoyed myself, especially in moments like I have a lot of notes that are just like, what the fuck? I like what is happening now? And like there are a lot of moments that like actually truly surprised me. Like when Grace woke up, I 100 percent did not see that coming. And I think that's like says more about me being like so in the book, because if you step back for 10 seconds, it's like, of course, Grace was going to wake up. But like in the moment. Yeah, I was like, what? I saw every move before it happened, but I think that's because I overall did not enjoy the book. It was a no-mance for me, Mm -hmm. and I'm not surprised at all it was a womance for you. And so maybe speak to the things that you like (laughs) and what this book is that you liked. Because I like crazy stuff, too. I like wild twists and turns. I did not find these to be wild. And so what absorbed you about the novel that allowed these surprises to work for you? Oh, it's 100% the angst. Like, in the discussion of it, it's like, I was so, like, both bogged down and fogged by and, like, consumed by the angst of this book that, like, I couldn't see the turns coming because I was so deep in the angst. I was, like, deep in, like, all of his, like, really intense, like, exhausting intensity. And even as I recognized him as, like, stupid, there are moments that this book feels, moves into soap opera in the same way that paranormal can often feel over earnest or even campy. Yeah, yeah. There are moments that are truly campy in this book that are hilariously stupid. And like, I get to enjoy that the book doesn't know that. But I also... Well, of course, Susan Sontag would argue that camp is what happens when there is an elevated goal Mm -hmm. that is missed and the creator is unaware of the missing part that they came up short. Yeah, I feel like that's large tracks of this book. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think you can just say it's camp. You don't have to say like it's camp and it's not aware of itself. Yeah. Like it just is camp. 
It is. It's so campy. And like that was so enjoyable for me because like the moments that it like struck an earnest chord, I could really feel in the moments where it like totally missed. I was like, <laughs> like I laughed out loud at some of the most earnest parts of this book because like that's all you could do. And like they're constantly getting caught having sex and like the things that they say to each other when they get caught are like totally ridiculous. And the things that people say to them when they're caught are totally ridiculous. It's just like everything about this book is so ridiculous. I'm going to say I'm going to push back on the idea that this book is camp because I like camp. I love Beast. Beast is camp Mm -hmm. because it does go over the top. I think this book is actually pretty measured. Everything is is pretty earned in the text. Like, I don't think it ever trips itself. It is structured like a true romance novel. Mm -hmm. 25% of the way through the book, you get your first kiss and then your first sex scene at 30% way through the book. And then 75%, you start your denouement and you know everything's going to work out. And like you said, it's got five clear acts. And while there is a lot of angst in the book, none of it is unearned, you know, none of it gets away from itself. I think it is soap opera-y for sure, just in the fact that it has all of these domestic issues. But I think it lacks like the flamboyant failure of something that would make it camp. I don't know. I mean, there's some lines like I didn't see a cheese grater, but it felt like one was shaving down my heart a little more with each passing second. God, these lines. So why I was asking you to talk about it is that your favorite parts are earnest. I think the earnestness makes sense. And I think there is like a real earnestness in this structure of a military romance. Like you really have to truly believe in something bigger than yourself. And in this book specifically, you have to truly believe in like one true love and that there isn't anyone else for him but Sam and there's no one else for her but Grayson. I wanted to kind of talk about the earnestness because there is so much of that here and there is so much of that around the discourse around military service that allows it to perpetuate itself, that creates something pleasurable in being a part of the military. Like these very bachelor, bachelorette TV show values of like, I love my family. I love my country. I love the single God that I pray to, you know, (laughs) like this acceptance of a kind of condescending patriarchy that not only like, do we need a Godhead to protect us and that everything needs to be organized hierarchically, but also that that needs to be enforced violently is kind of the subtext of this book. What's underpinning all of that earnestness and romance is this really traditional violent value. And not that that's what I thought you would like. I knew that you would like all of the earnestness in it because you used to always say that your sexiest part was like a piece of dialogue. I wonder like what the pleasure of this book is and how it speaks to a pleasure and military industrial complex. And if that's even something that's like on your radar. Well, I think one of the things that seems important to talk about in terms of this novel versus military romance in particular is like in many ways this is a domestic drama and not a military romance in the sense that like the only person who's sent overseas in this is her mother like the military very much feels like a setting and a prop rather than the thing that they're organizing around and through have you read other military romances i have oh i didn't know that i thought this was your first rendezvous (laughs) Mm -mm. See what I did there? Nice. I was surprised by how 
little the propaganda around the ideologies of the American military industrial complex really came up. They were definitely the subtext, but they weren't as explicit in the text as other military romances I've read, or like even other media that comes up around the romanticization of the military. Like there's a long history of romance in war movies, and there's a long history of television shows around the military industrial complex. And this felt like it was using the military like it didn't have to be the military like he could have been in a different school he could have been doing something different living his like weirdo bachelor life with the dudes I expected it to be more militaristic I expected the overtones to be louder and the fact that they weren't was surprising to me and different from other things that I've read. But, you know, again, like an ideology goes into rural spaces and is the only game in town in terms of creating a ladder to a version of economic safety and plants that ladder with the pillars of family, faith and loyalty to country is at its core a real problem. And one like obviously the conservative ideologies of the military and certain subsects of romance make a perfect dovetail for one another. They really inform and reinforce one another. And I think like, you know, that's why I don't read military romance in general. I find myself as a person really susceptible to the messaging that can come out of that kind of stuff. Like I had a 4th of July party every year where we watched 1776 and then I'd pick something else like Independence Day or like The Patriot because those movies are so outsized, but the thing that they're outsizing and making joyful or fun is like, America's the best! And I'm cautious around my own susceptibility around that. And I also understand that it's because, like, I was raised in a family that idolized the military. You know, my dad's a veteran. You know, my grandfather served. And it's like stuff like that. I'm already primed to see a man in uniform as like a kind of be all end all rather than the ideology or the imperial project or the preying upon of its own citizenry. And I think the uniform itself is a really good cloak. And the ideologies of family faith and loyalty are all also very good cloaks because like those seem like good things, you know, and then it's you just scratch the surface ever so slightly and you're like, oh, not in my name. I think it's really interesting that this felt subtle to you because I felt like the values were so (laughs) centered, like the idea of having faith and continuing to be faithful and loyal in a relationship that isn't really a relationship because there's so much distance and lack of communication. And it is even explicitly stated when they start the relationship that she's like, I have to accept the fact that you're going to be gone away from me for years at a time. And meanwhile, he's been practicing like a faithful relationship with someone who was comatose for five years. But also this idea of sacrifice of life in military. And by life, I don't mean just like being alive, Mm -hmm. but, you know, having time to do the things you're interested in the way a job is a life, right, is something that not only are military members responsible for, but all of us are responsible for. Like we are all complicit in that sacrifice and we all demand that sacrifice, right, because our rights are being protected abroad 
outlawed by the military felt like something that was really true in this. There's even that during the final tornado when Sam goes to save Avery at the gym. Avery would have probably been fine if she would have gone to the designated safe space in the gym for a tornado. The reason that she is wounded in this tornado is the fact that Sam has her wait for her at the front and then they get caught up in the rubble and stuff and Sam makes a self-sacrifice and then Avery feels guilty for it and everyone keeps saying like you're not responsible for this but they all are responsible for it that felt very military industrial complex sacrifice as necessary not only for the people who choose that life but as necessary for everyone who benefits from anything related to americaness and i think when we talk about for example in the current discourse when we talk about the militarization of the police Mm -hmm. we're not just talking about the weaponry we're also talking about the fact that you know there's also an expedited training program Mm -hmm. we are supposed to all be willing to sacrifice certain rights to them so that they can protect our rights Mm -hmm. Sam getting deliberately carried out of a job interview by her future partner, her current roommate, and being told what job she should get and having that arranged for her. And also the fact that it's like, this isn't really touched on in this particular romance novel, but the fact that it's the only game in town is something that's also true, I think, for the militarization of the police, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as, you know, just the basics of like hive mind, you know? that one bad apple spoils the bunch. I felt like the military was prominent and that its ideology was water in this novel. It was everywhere. But I think like, again, like on its face, like this idea of community over self and then having that play out when she finds the other young women who have been victimized by the professor's wife, like when the dean is like, you know, this is going to go hard for you guys. And they like do it anyway, because like, that's the right thing to do. Like, I see how that has a militaristic undertone. But like in the reading of it, like it seems to me that there are moments where community really does need to rise. And so like her move to like go to get Avery while stupid on the page also felt like one of those sort of like I've been working with this teen on her math for all this time and like having her alone at the gym which is silly is just you know the thing and it's that kind of stuff where again where it's like these values are not owned by the military well it's it's not really about community it's about hierarchy it's like submission of the self to the hierarchy not to the community but I think that's like where some of this got sort of mushy for me it's like when finding the other girls and like she wasn't going to protect her own transcripts for herself but as soon as there were other victims like that put something into her right that kind of thing where it's like there isn't a hierarchy in Sam's life other than like love or in some sense, potentially duty. I think I could see that argument. And so like there again, where it's like this didn't feel super hierarchical because like even some of the fixes weren't based in the hierarchy. Like you didn't have a good general who came out of nowhere to fix stuff. What do you mean? The threat of the hierarchy being the problem is presented. And I think like, you know, when he's like, do you have dyslexia? And he's like, prove that I do. Like that's presented as a potential problem, not as a solve. Like the hierarchy of the military actually is pretty absent. Like there isn't a ton of discussion about like their hierarchy as lieutenants or even within each other. But but there's discussion of that throughout the romantic relationship where Sam keeps saying like, I'm a mess. I need you to save me. And Grayson is placed as this 
you know, definitely saintly figure and it is placed at, I think, the top of a hierarchy. I think his life and his happiness and solving for his happiness is the ultimate project of the novel. And we do get this side thing of Sam suddenly reading her transcripts and fixing her own big bad. But most of the big bads revolve around Grayson and he solves for them. Right. But like he's solving her stuff. But like there's never a moment where she's like, you need to fix me. Like there's no conversation around that. In fact, he like has a pretty explicit conversation about how she has to fix herself and like you have to own your own accountability which feels very much like an army of one there's a line in the novel where Grayson is speaking to her about fixing a sink and she says you know I could have done that if you'd explained how you didn't have to get gunked up or take over all man style I grimaced reached into my pocket and handed her the eight of spades I overstepped boundaries to fix the problems the women in my life can probably handle themselves maybe it's from growing up with four sisters or maybe I'm overprotective that's hardly a sin she said with a grin but I'll take it like it's stuff like that like the fact that his protectiveness is in relation to his sisters right Mm -hmm. and the fact that he has four sisters is definitely speaking to a patriarchal hierarchy I feel sure but that doesn't feel any different than like a lot of romance novels where the main character relies on like his younger sister as like a through note of his own sentimentality or emotional consciousness like that particular scene that particular line doesn't feel particular to a military romance to me that feels particular to like the heteronormative project of most romances I think that's it is like this confusion of community for hierarchy that I find in this book. She needs to accept and she does accept his care for her and his like telling her what job to take and everything as like a love story but really it's a submission. Maybe. I can see that. I think one of the things that might be again sort of mushy or cloudy in this is that like the sites of non-military community are sites of community failure. Yeah. Where people are holding Grayson responsible for things that like A he didn't do and like holding him back in a lot of ways or like not trusting him and so like the like community that he didn't choose like the community that he was born into rather than the military. Yeah, is the problem. Right. The fact that the military understands him better or gets him is more productive and more effective at helping him be himself like that thing. That's very often a narrative undercurrent in military romances. Like there's something particular about the military that like buffs you to a shine. And this book is playing on that. This is perhaps because I've never read a different military romance like this is the military romance that I have read. And perhaps that's why I feel like it's every. Everywhere because I have nothing more blatant, I guess, to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it's a nomance for me. Yeah, makes sense. Entropy carries on. We got another split decision. Yeah, yeah. It's been pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out 
out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.